The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Hello and welcome to the Do Gooder podcast. This is the last episode of season one, so if you're tuning in for the first time and want more, you'll find the 11 previous episodes available for you to binge listen at your pleasure. A big thank you to all of our new listeners. It's been so wonderful to see the growth of this little podcast and to hear all of your valuable feedback. I am super excited to bring you today's episode with our special guest, Professor Peter Singer. He's been called the most dangerous man in the world and the world's most influential living philosopher. His ideas spark controversy and strong emotions, and he explores diverse topics such as religion, animal rights, bioethics, and effective altruism. Peter is currently the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics in the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. He's also the author of a great many books, including The Life You Can Save and The Most Good You Can Do. And he co-founded the nonprofit The Life You Can Save in order to promote effective giving to help people in extreme poverty. Welcome to the Do Gooder podcast, Peter. Thank you, mate. It's good to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you. I want to start with the question, what does doing good mean to you personally? Doing good to me means essentially making the lives of sentient beings better. Uh, so that means by sentient beings, I mean humans and non-human animals insofar as they're capable of feeling pain or pleasure. So at least vertebrates, and perhaps some invertebrates, and making their lives better means that they suffer less, that I contribute to at least some of them suffering less than they might otherwise suffer, experiencing better, richer, fuller, more pleasant lives. And you express your doing good through your work, obviously, through your writing, but also through the actions that you take in, in how you engage in the act of giving or helping? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think this has to be part of the way you live. It's not only the way you write and what you say. Yes, I guess I, I have a bit of a platform in which people read what I write or listen to what I say, so that's good. I can use it. But it also affects my life. For example, back in... 1971 I stopped eating meat so I think that was an ethical decision I think I was not contributing as much to animal suffering through not doing that and through encouraging other people uh, not to do that and I also around the same time started uh, well my wife and I started giving 10% of our income to uh, charities and we've increased that percentage over the years as we've become more financially secure and comfortable and we're perhaps more aware than we were then of the need to find charities that are demonstrably effective and are using that money well. So would you say your your doing good is 
coming from a desire to be altruistic or, or a feeling of altruism or more so that we have a moral obligation as humans to do good? Yeah, I, I find it a little hard to distinguish those two because I think I am concerned that others should suffer less and live better lives, as I was saying. I suppose you could say that's an altruistic concern, but it feeds directly into the ethical views that I hold, which are utilitarian views, looking at the consequences of our actions for others. So, yeah, I'm happy to say that it's an obligation as well. Yeah, yeah. And you just touched on the utilitarian views. Could you break that down a little bit more for our listeners? What what does that actually mean from a philosophical perspective? Utilitarianism is one of a family of theories that are called by philosophers consequentialism. That is, they're theories that say that the right action is the action that has the best consequences and, and the wrong action is an action where you could have done something that would have had better consequences. Uh, now, just putting it that way leaves it wide open what sort of consequences you're talking about and utilitarianism is distinguished from other versions of consequentialism by saying that it's the consequences for well-being that we're concerned about the classical utilitarians talked about happiness and the absence of pain or suffering and i think that's a perfectly reasonable concept of well-being there's some debate about how we should best understand well-being but but yes essentially the consequences to look at are, as i was saying those for beings that are capable of enjoying their life or capable of suffering through their lives and trying to make that better for them yeah and at what point in your life did you come to an understanding within yourself that this was the philosophy that you subscribed to or resonated most with you? It was a process that started when I was an undergraduate at the University of Melbourne. In my second year, I took an ethics course. The course was taught by uh, John McCloskey, who was definitely not a utilitarian. He had an intuitionist view which said we have certain duties, prima facie duties that we need to balance out. Uh, and he was quite critical of utilitarianism. But I thought that some of the objections that he made were not really very convincing. So I remember writing one of my papers on showing why one of those objections was not convincing. And, uh, you know, he was a committed educator. And although I disagreed with him, he so I guess saw some merits in my argument and from that point on, took an interest in my work, later supervised my master's thesis that I wrote also at the University of Melbourne after graduating. So it was by, you know, testing out whether I could respond to objections and finding that of all of the objections that were made, I didn't think any of them were really insuperable for utilitarians. And seeing this as a somewhat commonsensical sort of view, you know, in a way, perhaps you could say less airy-fairy than some of the talk about duties and so on, things that, well, we have to say, what is that? How do we know we have these duties and not those ones? Uh, and, you know, when you talk about pain and pleasure and so on, they're very concrete things that we all know, that we all appreciate their value in our own lives. So there was a, a basis for ethics that I felt was really down to earth and it was more congenial to me than some of the other possibilities. Were there parts of, of that philosophy that raised discomfort in you in the early days that you had to work through? Yes. I mean, some of the 
argument against utilitarianism is based on pointing to counterintuitive consequences that it has in individual cases. Uh, there's a famous example in, in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, where Ivan asks Alyosha whether he would be prepared to create a kind of utopia on Earth if first he had to torture that small child over there. And of course, nobody likes the idea of torturing a small child. Maybe I couldn't really torture a small child, but suppose that really that did mean that no more children would ever be tortured in the rest of you know eternity uh, on Earth. Well, it would be worth it, wouldn't it? Because unfortunately, children are being tortured in various sorts of horrible ways, and not only children. And Dostoevsky was offering you the opportunity to abolish this. Mm -hmm. And could I say that that would be wrong because you must never, never, ever under any circumstances torture one child? Well, these are fantastic circumstances. It doesn't mm -hmm. lead to the conclusion that we should look around for children to torture, of course. But, um, <laughs> but you know, yes, if you really accept that hypothesis you really imagine that that is a possibility somehow you, you know don't know how dostoevsky doesn't tell us how torturing one child will bring about this utopia but if you really believe that then yeah would be the right thing to do it reminds me of the ursula Ah, exactly yeah. i think she was borrowing yeah. from him i think yeah. she was consciously it's taking from dostoevsky the ones who walk away from, from omelos yes. yeah that's yes. right yeah. Yep. yeah yeah that's right interesting You've described, or I've seen yourself described, as a hedonistic utilitarian. Is that something you would... Yes, I'll accept that label. Um, that basically, you know, that's the Greek term for pleasure. So it says, you know, the value that we're trying to maximise is pleasure and the absence of pain. Maybe that's a bit simplistic. Um, maybe there's, you know, there are different forms of pleasure, obviously. And, you know, sometimes I talk about living a rich and fulfilling and rewarding life, but... Um, if you really want to simplify it and just say it's pleasure and pain, that's a close enough approximation. Okay. So your ideas spark controversy. They polarise people. You've had multiple lectures interrupted by protesters. Your appointment at Princeton was marred by a pretty extreme response. You've been called the most dangerous man in the world. What do you think it is about your ideas that ignites such a deep and visceral response in people? Yeah, let me say that this uh, most dangerous man in the world stuff uh, label was around when I was appointed to Princeton in 99. Yeah. By the time 9-11 occurred a couple of years <laughs> later, I think uh, bin Laden had replaced me. Yes. Um, so I, I don't claim that title anymore. Of course, I never Fair claimed enough. that title, but uh, I don't think anybody even attributes it to me. But I think it's the role of philosophy to say things that might make people uncomfortable because it stimulates them to think. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not deliberately going to say things that I think are false to, to provoke people to think, but I am going to straightforwardly put out ideas that seem to me to be plausible and defensible, even if other people are going to be disturbed by them. And after all, that's what Socrates was doing in Athens a couple of thousand years ago. and. Uh, he was made to drink, drink hemlock for it. Um, hopefully, that's not going to be my fate. Um, although, you know, the way some trends are going about uh, free speech and political correctness, uh, it's, I think, I'm not going to say we're heading in the direction of, of putting people to death for their views, but it is getting tougher, I think. Yeah. That was a question I wanted to ask you is, when did you go to Princeton? Was that? 99. 99. And so there was a lot of controversy around that appointment. And... I wanted to ask you whether the public 
appetite or acceptance for those ideas that you put out there that are that can be very controversial do you think that acceptance has changed over over the past 20 years or is it getting worse it's certainly changed but i'm not sure whether it's really changed in a way that's better uh the interesting difference that i find is that the protests against me at princeton were substantially from the conservative Christian right. And they were my views about abortion and euthanasia that they were protesting. There were some protests from a disability group called Not Dead Yet, and I'm not describing them as from the right. They were, you know, I guess it was an encounter with a more militant form of uh, disability activism. But still, a a lot of the background and uh, I think a lot of the people who were there were from that Christian right, and particularly there was a a protest from Steve Forbes, who was then running for the Republican nomination for president, the nomination that eventually was won by George W. Bush, Mm -hmm. but he was in a way protesting to demonstrate his bona fides to those Republican conservatives whose votes he wanted. Now, to my regret, more of this protest against speech comes from people who you would have to say are on the left and whose progressive ideas I generally align myself with, if not in every particular. And I regret that there isn't more regard for the value of of free speech and freedom of thought and discussion on the left, because it it used to be the left that was mostly uh, basically restricted by the right Mm. in terms of free speech. Uh, Obviously, if if they're going to have their turn at restricting others, then it's going to erode support for the idea of free speech and I think the left will be on the receiving end of that in some countries. Yeah. And what about you? You must have had to develop a pretty thick skin to, to deal with the controversy and that erupts around these ideas. Yeah, I think I have developed a fairly thick skin. I think, you know, perhaps I already had a reasonably thick skin even before that controversy. I, I wrote Animal Liberation back in... Uh, well, 1973-74, I was writing it. It came out in 75. And I spent a lot of time in the New York Public Library reading journals that were describing absolutely horrendous things that were being done to animals, You know, which, fortunately, I don't think you would find quite those experiments. And people in the animal movement said, I don't understand how you can spend days reading this. Doesn't it make your blood boil? In one sense, of course, it did make my blood boil, but it also made me very determined to get this out in the public and to argue why I thought this was wrong. So I had to, in that way, sort of cool my immediate emotional response to it. And I think something similar with the criticisms that I'm getting about the views that I hold. I could get very angry and upset about this, but I really do want people to understand my views to, you know, some of them may, of course, still object to them when they do understand them, but quite a number of the people who object to them, I think, don't understand them very well. Uh, and I want people to discuss those and these things. And I want to make the point that if they disagree with these views, then tell me why I, what I've got wrong. And, and some people do that. And I've had some really interesting discussions with people from the disability movement and from pro-life movements and so on. But, you know, to, to do that, you have to keep reasonably calm, I guess, and not get too personally upset about what's being said. Absolutely. You've written extensively on effective altruism, notably through the books The Life You Can Save and The Most Good You Can Do. Can you describe to listeners what 
effective altruism is in a nutshell? In a nutshell, effective altruism is the idea that living altruistically ought to be one of the significant aims in our life. Doesn't mean we have to be saints and be altruistic in everything we do, but it ought to be one of the things we think about. And whatever resources we can put into living altruistically, whether it's money or time or skills of various kinds, we ought to try to do that so as to maximize the positive impact of those resources. So that means that rather than donating to a charity because somebody hands you a brochure with a picture of a smiling child and says, you know, you can help this child through your donation, you actually do some serious research and find out what the charity is doing with your money, perhaps compare it with other charities that have demonstrated effectiveness and give to those where there's the best evidence that they really will be effective. I subscribe to the the logic and the reason behind effective altruism and from my background working in international development you know I've, I've very much seen how it can go very wrong if we don't put those things into place but the the one thing that I find missing in the effective altruism argument is the consideration of the role emotion plays in the act of doing good or the decision to do good and I fully appreciate the essential need for applying reason and logic and an evidence base to that decision making. But I think it's difficult to ignore the fact that emotion is a primary driver of our desire to do good in the first place. And something that calls on our emotions or, you know, pulls at the heartstrings stimulates us to want to help. And it often results in good intentions, but not so positive outcomes. Does effective altruism seek to take the emotion completely out of doing good? No, I don't think effective altruism is trying to take the emotion out of it, but it is perhaps trying to channel it, as you were saying, into the more effective ways of doing good, and that does require the use of, of reason and evidence. And of course, it depends on where your emotion goes. So many people will take the example I just used, they'll see a picture of a smiling child or a needy child, and they'll feel an emotional pull to that. Mm. But some of the people in the effective altruism movement have said, for example, the emotion that I feel is the desire to do the greatest possible amount of good that I can. So that's not directed to specific individuals, especially not individuals you can identify through their photograph or actually seeing them in person. But it's rather an emotion that you know, the world could be a lot better and I'm pleased if I can contribute to reducing some of the bad things that are happening in the world. So so there, there are various kinds of emotions yeah. here. And I suppose effective altruists might feel that the emotion that leads you to relate to a specific person in need is more likely to be one that leads you astray in terms of getting the best value for your resources. Uh, as compared with the more general one that looks tries to look at the larger picture. So understanding that a huge amount of people do engage in giving based solely on emotion, how do we, I guess, bring the logic and reason in practically to that decision-making framework? How do we get people to acknowledge the emotion and say, yes, this is, is what's driving me, but how do I do it better?
I mean, that's a very good question, and I'm really not sure that I know the answer. It's a question in which there's ongoing research going on in what triggers people. And I've had a, a minor involvement in some of that research where we're making different appeals to people. So we actually have what we call a, a rational appeal, which talks about the general issues. That they're all related to giving to people in extreme poverty in low-income countries. So, but we have a kind of a rational appeal and we have a more emotional appeal, which talks about a particular child. Yeah. And then we have a combination of the two. And one of the things we're interested in is whether the combined appeal does as well as the emotional appeal. Seems like the emotional appeal typically does slightly better, not hugely better actually, but slightly better than the rational appeal. Right. But the combined appeal on some of our sort of little pilot things that we've run does as well or slightly better than the emotional appeal. And that's slightly different. Uh, so one of the people involved in this is Paul Slovic, who's a researcher in uh, Oregon, who in earlier work sort of essentially said that you've got to focus on identifiable individuals. That's what gets you a response. He did that work where uh, he tested people who were asked to give uh, and they were given a picture of this small African child and told her name and her age and so on. And others were given a picture, others were just given a statement about helping people in yeah. uh, Malawi, I think it was. And yes, the ones who got the, the child gave significantly more. So to some extent, we're pushing back against that finding, although he's also part of our research team and uh, uh, maybe trying to devise some rational appeals that can work. But you know, I agree, we, we need to work with people as they are. Yeah. We don't want to reduce the amount of giving that is given, but we want to maintain it or even increase it and channel it in the most effective ways we can. And EA or effective altruism seeks to provide information where people can work out how to be the most effective with their resources they've got at hand? Yes, that's right. I wrote a book uh, published uh, in 2009 called uh, The Life You Can Save, and that led to the establishment of an organisation with the same name, uh, which I suppose technically I'm the founder, but the person who's really running it is a guy called Charlie Bressler, who had a successful career in uh, the retail industry, but decided that wasn't really what he'd wanted to do with his life and, and volunteered to build up this organization. So you can go to the website of thelifeyoucansave.org and where there's 22 charities that we currently recommend that have been assessed in various ways that uh, we believe we can safely recommend as being effective. And we're trying to encourage people to give to those uh, charities. These are, these are charities relating to extreme poverty. Yeah. Um, and then there's givewell.org, which does specific research on this. Sometimes we draw on their research for the, for the charities we recommend. And there's an organization in the animal field called Anim Animal Charity Evaluators yeah. that is a kind of effective altruism for those who want to reduce animal suffering. Okay. So yes, this is, this is happening. And I think it's, it's certainly, well, if you include GiveWell, um, I guess there are probably by now hundreds of millions of dollars that have gone to these recommended charities that probably would have gone to less effective charities without these organizations. What makes a charity effective? Well, um, of course that will depend on what it is that you're trying to do, but often it's a matter of, of showing that there's a knowledge base that the kind of intervention works. Mm -hmm. So if a charity is giving out bed nets against malaria in malaria prone regions, do they work in reducing the number of deaths of children under five? 
Uh, and there's very good evidence that they do based on controlled studies with villages in which nets are distributed and villages in which nets are not distributed. And then you work out, so how expensive is it to distribute enough nets to predictably save a child's life? And turns out, depending on which country they're working in, just be somewhere between two and three thousand dollars, which, you know, for saving a life by certainly by affluent world standards is incredibly cheap. So that makes that charity effective. And then there are other charities that do other things like uh, restoring sight in people who have cataracts, which is also extremely cheap. In Australia, we have the Fred Hollows Foundation, which is one of the charities we recommend that the life you can save. There's Village Enterprise, which tries to help women in rural East Africa to develop little enterprises, little businesses of some sort or other that they can work their way out of poverty. Uh, that's also been trialed and compared with other villages where that's not happening and it does seem to produce more income and better living conditions for those families that have been through this program. Yep. So, you know, those are ways of testing the effectiveness of charities and if they come through that successfully, they, they get on our list of recommended charities. And what about, um, I guess, a, a, the ethics of the intervention? Is that something that effective altruism considers? And the reason I'm asking that is you and I co-wrote an article on orphanage tourism and around looking at whether in fact it is right to go and support children in these places if we know the evidence base says that harm is being caused. I wonder if within effective altruism there's a consideration of the ethics of the intervention itself. Well, certainly there is. I, I suppose what we're looking for in the assessment is that the intervention does good and if we find that there are corresponding and offsetting harms that are comparably serious or even more serious than the benefit that the intervention does, mm -hmm. then it would be unethical to recommend it. Yes. So yes, in that sense, we, we, we do look at that and we do look at possible adverse consequence. So for example, you know, some of the things that get discussed is um, one of the charities we support is the Fistula Foundation, which repairs obstetric fistulas in women who usually impoverished women in low-income countries, often quite young women, a bit too young to have children, yeah. and they get into difficulties in the birth and they don't have medical intervention and they develop a fistula which makes them incontinent, perhaps doubly incontinent, and then their husband throws them out because they can't yeah. keep clean and so on. So it's a horrible condition and it looks like a very good intervention to do a surgical repair. But some people said, well, if you give more money to fistula, does that mean that you're taking train doctors from other areas where they might be doing just as much good but there isn't the kind of public support for that that you can get for fistula donation so you know we talked to fistula about that and it seemed that they were actually bringing more doctors into that field but maybe they were providing more opportunities for doctors in general at least we we, we were aware of that objection but we were not convinced that there was real evidence that was happening to enough to offset the good that we think they were doing. This reminds me of a, a conversation I had with a previous guest who talked about wicked problems. So in solving one problem, we create others. Mm. Uh, and I think the interesting piece in that is where is the, the judgment that the problems that we are creating by solving one are higher or lower on the scale of, of harm than others. Yeah, there are certainly those questions and it does depend to some extent of you know, what size picture you look at. I've certainly had people saying to me, well, you know, the Against Malaria Foundation is saving the lives of children quite cheaply and preventing them dying of malaria. 
but isn't that just increasing population and isn't you know mm -hmm. population going to be a problem and then we'll just have mass starvation and isn't that going to be worse well you know if you could really be positively convinced that these countries could not support their population maybe you would think that's better not to do that but uh, again i think that's not that clear there are serious questions about the rapid population growth in some countries um, and how to bring that down and um, so you know you can look at all those things but to say well we're not going to help your child survive malaria because it'll just be another child adding to the population seems to me to be too harsh to say um, you know without the knowledge really that that's going to have bad consequences. So we like to uh, talk about examples of doing good gone wrong is there anything that jumps to mind for you as a really good example of, of how good intentions can can result in negative outcomes? I, I don't really have a clear example. Uh, obviously, as you say, we wrote this column on orphanage <laughs> tourism. That seems like a good a good example of, of things that go wrong. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure uh, what other examples. I know I had a, many years ago, I had a bit of a row with somebody in the animal movement who was appalled at the Korean dog markets, uh, markets in, in South Korea that were selling live dogs for food. And she was supporting an organization there that was buying the dogs and rehoming them. Okay. But I wasn't convinced that that was going to be really successful because obviously you're increasing the market for the dogs and you're going to get more dogs captured and going through that market, which even if some of them get bought and not killed, they've had bad experiences in going through that. So to me, that was an uh, example of a charity that had an emotional appeal but which I couldn't support because I thought it was going to do at least as much harm as it was preventing even if even if not more. So is it better to do nothing than do something with the risk of harm? That depends on, on how great the risk is and what the harm is so I would say you know if it's 50-50 whether you'll do more good than harm or whether you'll do more harm than good then yes don't do it find it find a charity in which the odds that you'll do more good than harm are better than that and i think there are such charities those are the ones we're recommending at the life you can save don't just give because you can say well i'm trying something and i i don't know whether it's going to do more good than harm i think you have to have some basis for thinking i can see clearly what the good consequences of this are possibly there'll be some harmful consequences but i there may not be and i'm you know don't think that they're so probable or else that they're so serious yeah. that they're going to offset the good that is done and i think that that raises a good point is that people can become quite overwhelmed by all of the options for them to help or engage in doing good and then again become overwhelmed by the fear of causing harm by supporting something and i i think that's somewhere that effective altruism comes in and provides a framework for people to do that research yeah. because we are looking for people to tell us it is complex and it is difficult and you know it's very easy to give these days like you can purchase something online and click an extra button and you've donated to something that looks good but you've spent a few seconds reading mm -hmm. about it right. and so I think we rely on others to tell us what is good and we place our faith that they have done the due diligence and they have done the resources um, and so I think you know people are searching for a way 
to know that what they're doing is is good. And I've heard from people that I've worked with that have said, I'm just scared to do anything. I don't want to do anything. Yeah, that is true. And I should say, it's not always that they're worried about doing some harm, but a lot of people in the broader community have this idea that the money isn't going to get to the people who need it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that's that's a more common response that I get. You know, that they've heard some story about some charity that was siphoning it all off and you know paying for nice holidays for staff or something like that, and they think that that's you know a common thing. Was well, in fact, of course, it's one of these things that the media will pick up on if it yes. happens, but it's really very rare, and certainly the major well-known charities, they will vary in how efficient they are and how effective they are at doing good, yeah. but you know, they're not frauds that are just scamming the public and skimming the money off for themselves. Yeah, yeah. So I want to go back to you. Who is or has been your greatest influence on doing good? Probably my wife is the answer to that, <laughs> because these decisions we took together when I became a vegetarian, we were already married and I was a graduate student in Oxford. She was a high school teacher in Oxford. And, uh, you know, that was a joint decision. And I'm not sure that I would have had the courage to go that way on my own because to become a vegetarian in 1971, you really were likely to be thought of as a crank. But she was prepared to do that with me and thought that it was the right decision on the basis of what we're talking about. And similarly, we decided to give away 10% of our income to charity that we started off with. And that, that was a joint decision. So I think she's been a really major influence on me. So the the Canadian graduate student, Richard Keshin, who I first talked to, was the, really the first vegetarian that I'd met that yeah. I'd had a discussion with, which again, you know, how can you not meet a vegetarian when you're 24 <laughs> and a graduate student, right? Seems impossible today, yeah. but it was certainly possible very easy then, in fact. So, you know, yes, if that had a, you know, took a, a major turn in my life, um, it's had a, a big influence. A person I met uh, who, I regard as one of the great animal rights activists of the late 20th century, a guy called Henry Spearer um, influenced me, although I'd already, I met him in 1974 when I was already writing Animal Liberation. And in fact, I was giving an adult education class at New York University that he came along to, and that's how we first met. But he's somebody who, he was already nearly 50, I think. Uh, so he was already sort of a formed person and he'd spent most of his life fighting for the underdog marching for civil rights in the American South, uh, going to Cuba to witness the Cuban revolution firsthand, uh, starting a uh, reform union group. He was a merchant seaman, so he was a member of the National Maritime Union, which was a highly corrupt union that enriched its bosses and did sweetheart deals with for the, that sold out the seamen. So starting a reform group there, which led to their candidate for the election getting beaten around the head with lead pipes it was pretty uh, wow. rough sort of days yeah. but he came to that because he'd read some article this is an interesting example of critic he'd, he'd read an article in in uh, a left-wing american magazine ridiculing the idea of animal rights uh, which i talked about or animal liberation which i'd written about in the new york review of books that was my first publication on that topic although the article was ridiculing it and although he was generally sympathetic to the line that magazine took he thought yeah Maybe there is something in this, you know, maybe it's not so stupid to think Mm. that animals are the most oppressed and the most voiceless of of all groups. And so he came along to this course that he'd seen advertised that I was giving, which I was presenting the argument of animal liberation. So I certainly had an influence on him, but he had a reciprocal influence on me in terms of thinking about strategies that can really make a difference. He really transformed the movement because 
as he put it, at the time that he came in, he was first interested in the use of animals in research was the first topic that he he picked up. And then there, there were a couple of old established anti-vivisection societies. And basically he said what they're doing is they're putting out publications each month that they send to their supporters, which make them feel really ill at the descriptions of all the horrible things that they're doing to animals. And then they say to the supporters, please donate us more funds so that next month we can send you another publication, (laughs) which will also make you feel really ill. But there was no impact that this was having at all on any set of experiments. So Henry had the idea of saying, well, you know, let's find a soft target that we can attack and really try to stop it. And as luck would have it, he lived on the Upper West Side in New York. About six blocks from where he lived was the Museum of Natural History, a museum that many people go to to see, you know, exhibits of stuffed animals and, and the planets and all sorts of things. But it turned out that they were doing experiments on an upper floor that the public was not wow. seeing. And they, they were experiments on cats, which were pretty nasty and certainly not curing any major diseases. They were blinding cats or removing their sense of smell or sight, and they were seeing how this affected their sexual behavior, their ability to choose a cat to mate with rather than a a rabbit, for example. It was really bizarre research, paid for by the the federal government grants. He was able, you know, in a way, you just had to publicize that and get some people out there and and get it stopped. So uh, I think that was probably the first set of animal experiments stopped by activists for the animal movement. And I think I learned a lot from him about how you make progress on these sorts of issues. Yeah, incredible. So a lot of different people at different points in your life, you would say, have influenced. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this question might be familiar to you. It's based on, I think it's Kwame Apaya, uh, who says, what do you think the greatest social challenges of our time are? something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we we were thinking as humans right now. Okay, well, the most obvious example for me is the way we treat animals, and I'm just giving you one example of that, which already I think people look back and say, how on earth could people fund, think that was important enough to fund? But in the longer term, I think it'll be factory farming. I think that you could look at the imprisonment of literally tens of billions of animals right now in the world in conditions that are clearly totally unsuitable for their well-being, but that's just disregarded if this will enable us to produce the animal products slightly more cheaply, even though as far as food production is concerned, it's wasteful because we're feeding them more food value in terms of plant foods than we're getting out of it, and uh, we have plenty of good healthy alternatives so I don't know whether it'll take 20 years or 50 years or a century but I think at some point people will look back on that as we now look back on I don't know the the Roman games for example you know throwing people to the lions and tigers and, and you think how could people think that was an enjoyable way to spend an afternoon so what's the answer I look if I knew the answer uh, and it was not simply continuing to try to raise awareness about these topics by talking about them, writing about them, putting stuff online about them, then I would be doing it. Yeah. So that's the best that I best answer that I know at the moment. What would you say to your 21-year-old self, knowing what you know now? Well, 
I would try to open the eyes of that 21-year-old self to the things that I only opened my eyes to a few years later, including the treatment of animals, including to help people in extreme poverty. You know, I, at 21, I was already reasonably active politically. I was an undergraduate. Uh, the Vietnam War was on. Uh, I was sometime around that period uh, president of an organization called Melbourne University Campaign Against Conscription, which of course was for the purpose of the, the Vietnam War. Yeah, similar sort of period, I was uh, part of the abortion law reform movement. So I think some of the things that I were doing were in the right lines, yeah. but I certainly hadn't thought about some of the things that I was doing in my day-to-day -day life that um, I now think I should have been doing earlier. Yeah. Do you see yourself as an activist? Yes, I still consider myself an activist, and there are still you know, events that I will turn out for. I will march about climate change, yeah. for example, or perhaps for... Um, some of these other causes that we've been talking about. But probably I also think that given the audience that I've built up, my time may best be spent trying to use that platform and reach more people. That leads me into my next question, considering the platform you have, and when you do speak, a lot of people listen and hear it. If you could tell every single person in the world one thing right now and know that they would hear it, what would it be? Well, probably it would be to think about the way you're living your life and whether you really are living in accord with your values and to try to live your life from now on in a more conscious and reflective way uh, that takes into account what you really want to live for. Because I think a lot of people, if they think about that, will want to live in a way that is roughly consistent with effective altruism. That is, they'll want to leave the world a better place for having lived in it. And I think more people need to stop and think about the channels that they've been going down, which may have been set by their parents or by, you know, habits of various kinds or what some careers counsellor said they were good at, which may not be something that does accord with the values that they really hold. Can you name a person, a particular individual that you think is doing a lot of good right now? There are quite a lot of them, I think, who I greatly admire the amount of good that they're doing. I've, I've talked about Charlie Bressler, who gave up his career um, in the retail business in order to work, I should say, as, a, as an unpaid volunteer, um, a very hard worker, very full time, to set up the life you can save and has resulted in substantial amounts of money going to those most effective charities. I also admire a lot of people in the animal movement who've been very dedicated. Uh, I was actually a co-founder of the organization that is now known as Animals Australia, which is, uh, I think, the largest and most effective uh, pro-animal movement in Australia. So I've known Glenna Sugis for a very long time. I greatly admire the work that she's done in directing and building up that organization. And of course, Lynn White, who's so bravely gone to places like the Middle East and, and Indonesia and filmed what's been happening to the animals we export. Yeah. to those places that takes a lot of courage and I really admire that. Absolutely. Where's your favourite place on earth? So I enjoy being by the ocean. Yeah. Um, I'm fortunate enough that the family has a, a holiday place in Anglesey. Um, I really like being by the ocean there and on the beach and in the water when the weather's uh, warm that's and suitable right. for that. You surf, don't you? I do surf, yeah. yes, that's right. I'm not a very good surfer, <laughs> but I still enjoy being out there in the waves. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so Anglesey and you spend a good amount of time in Melbourne still? Yes, yeah. yes, I'm really here for half the year. Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. only teaching one semester at Princeton. Yeah. Final question, what 
books or podcasts are you consuming at the moment? Well, I don't get a lot of time for, for <laughs> podcasts, I have to say. Um, I don't have a long commute or anything like that, yeah. which is a good place to listen to podcasts. But if I do, I might listen to Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History, which yep. is I find enjoyable and entertaining. I don't like the ads he started putting into it. They're a bit annoying. Uh, books, well, uh, over the summer, I've been reading a collection of, of short stories given to me by Joyce Carol Oates, who is now a retired Princeton professor, but has been a, a friend since I came to Princeton 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, I think she's a great writer with interesting stories. So that's, that's what I've been reading at the moment. Excellent. So we'll add that to the show notes so people can explore those for themselves, hopefully. Sure. Peter, it's been a pleasure to have you speaking with me on the Do Gooder podcast. I always love talking to you and having the opportunity to unpack some of the ideas that you have and also the questions that I have around them. And I just, yeah, I want to thank you for your time and your interest in engaging in this with me. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.